Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot S. Scott, social worker and improviser. I'm so delighted today, as this is my 111th podcast, to share it with Bill Wilkinson. Bill and I met at one of Aretha Sills classes, which are just fantastic, and found out that we had some common interests, especially in the specialization of play. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But good morning, Bill. How are you doing there in Indiana? Good morning. I am doing very well. Thank you, Margo. So what we're going to get right into it, since I'm a psychotherapist, what was your childhood like? No, I'm just kidding. How? <laughs> it's a good, that's a great place to start, Margo. It's a, uh, all right. Um, you know, as I thought it was great, but as, uh, as I got older and learned more, I found out that maybe there were some traumatic aspects of it uh, that... Uh, you know, kind of led me down uh, the path of uh, yeah, discovery, which is kind of what I learned. Wow, that's terrific. So um, tell me about your childhood, how it influenced you on the path of discovery. Yeah, well, I was born in Indiana. I was born in Northwest Indiana, um, which some people don't consider a part of Indiana. Uh, since it is on, on the central time zone. So we get all of Chicago radio and television and things of that nature. Uh, my dad worked in the steel mill up there. Um, so, you know, I was considered a region rat. That's uh, that, that area up there is called the region. And if you're from there, um, I have found over time that as I meet people from there, we all have this common understanding <laughs> of how we grew up and what that was like. Um, so it was really good. I was in, in want of nothing, to be quite honest, and given quite a lot of freedom. I was born in 1969. So, um, you know, I grew up in the 70s, you know, as a young child, and there was a lot more freedom then. For example, speaking of play, you know, you would just run outside and, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, adults around and um, children could find their own way through play. Um, so really, it was quite wonderful and had quite a lot of freedom and took even more freedoms as freedoms were allowed <laughs> to me. Um, and it was wonderful. One of the one of the big things that happened when I was young was um, they built uh, the South Lake Mall um, in the 70s. And, and in that same area, they started to develop that area around uh, US 30 and they opened uh, the Holiday Star Theater. So it was a Holiday Inn that had this big theater attached to it and they would have acts come in um, quite frequently. And so this was kind of in my backyard. It was like there were two subdivisions and uh, a fence. And somewhere early on, someone had taken down one of the planks in the fence. So it was very little rascals, you know, you could crawl through the fence and get to where the theater was. And so over time, you know, when I was in high school, I got to work in that theater. I, I got to see wonderful shows in that theater. I got to go backstage. Um, um, there were stage hands that would knew the local kids like myself and would let us backstage and and things like that. So it was it was quite a, a wonderful um, way of growing up and uh, something I don't think uh, many 
experience now, but I was very lucky just to be in that location at that time. That sounds wonderful. So when did the acting or improv bug hit you? What came first, acting or improv? Uh, acting for sure. Um, you know, it was really just, I was imitating skits from the Carol Burnett show, uh, Tim Conway, uh, to my grandmother. That's where it all began. Um, and then when I was 12, um, I joined um, a community theater called Ross Summer Music Theater uh, in Maryville, Indiana. And uh, I was 12 years old and we did Oliver. And I was one of those kids that was too big, like too tall to be in the workhouse, but too young to be in Fagan's gang. So I got to be the one of the kids that poured the gruel and got to chase Oliver around. <laughs> um, so that was my big, that was my, you know, big break on, on stage, as it were. And uh, yeah, and really from that, that's where, that's where the bug really caught on. Like it wasn't just something I enjoyed and something I did, you know, to enjoy, to entertain myself, but seeing that you could entertain others and play with others was on stage in that capacity uh, was around when I was 12 years old. That's fantastic. So when were you introduced to improv and where? Yeah, I was introduced, you know, it's funny because when I, I was probably introduced to improv, really my first memory of it was really in college. And so I went to college 87 to 91. And back then, it, when you referred to Viola Spolin, it was referred to as Spolin. <laughs> you know, and I'm got I got to tell you so it was it was one of these things that I was just really I I was that delusional person that was just really into like serious acting and all of that. And I really didn't give improv a second thought. Now, of course, you know, um working with Aretha, I I I've said if I if I knew then what I knew now, I would have left college and sought out Viola sought out Paul and um, taken a completely different route, but that wasn't my journey. My journey led me uh, this this past year to Aretha. And right. I'm grateful that I'm finally living kind of this kind of this dream that could just sort of eluded me, or I really didn't even know I had. Yeah, she's just fabulous. I just adore her, and her knowledge of Spolin is tremendous. Well, in the the foundation, because I did what I, I did sort of touch on different aspects of improvisation. I'm a member of Comedy Sports Indianapolis. Ah, OK. Yeah. So we do a lot of short form games and 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 things like that. And then as I started to research before I uh, joined Aretha's classes, I started to research and start to really read all the books about improv and so forth. And I just started to realize that there's been, you know, there's been these major movements that have had major change in improv. And I was getting dissatisfied with it. And I knew there was something missing. So I went back to the source. And so luckily, um, Aretha was doing these online. And I was able to, to get it from the source. And it's such a foundational work when you get it from the source, because so much more makes sense. Um, for example, like gibberish games are very popular in short form. 
And there's always the there's always the bit where somebody says something in gibberish really long, and then the translation is okay, <laughs> you know, just as a as a bit. So it's all very bit driven, and that's not how um, gibberish is taught in the in the foundation in the in the source work. Right. It's very different, and so and that just felt so much better and made so much more sense to me. And uh, so I'm really, I'm, I'm really, I feel like I'm tuck pointing my foundation now. I got a, I had a good foundation of improv, but now I'm just securing the foundation and making sure the cracks are filled with the, the right information. So let's go back a little bit. Before you joined comedy sports, you did some improv in college. Yeah, but it was not much. No, you- it, it was just a, it was really just people who thought they knew what improv was. Okay. All right. And then where did you go from there? Or did you go immediately to comedy sports? Yeah, no, um, that was a, that was another long journey. I mean, I went from, so, you know, I had four years in theater. Um, and, uh, again, I just, I didn't know where I wanted to go. I knew I was one of those students that just took all the theater classes and ignored any kind of, you know, other studies. So I would have probably had to go for another two years to actually complete a degree. And uh, so I went into the, the, the dean or the chair of the department at the time, uh, Dr. Don Lacasse. And I said, you know, I said, where do I go from here? And he said, I think you need to go out and fail. And that was some of the best advice I ever got. And so that's what I did. I left, I moved to Chicago. Well, actually, no, I had to stop in Munster, Indiana. There's a theater up there that was doing a season. And so I did that for the summer after college. And then I moved to Chicago. And in Chicago at the time, this was the early 90s, there was a uh, there was an underground theater scene, um, which was literally underground. One of the places I worked, the primary place I worked was Cafe Voltaire, which was a vegetarian restaurant on Clark Street. Uh, owned by Mark Epstein. And underneath, in the basement, in the storage area, there was a theater. So there was these broken down couches and chairs and things like that, the ceiling like one foot above your head. And um, they, they hosted theater, a week's worth of theater, all week long, two shows a night. Different companies could come in, put on whatever they wanted. They'd get a cut of the house. Um, I did some of that um, and also worked as a host. And uh, that's where I really started to cut my teeth in a different way than, you know, college had prepared me for. And uh, so I spent, yeah, probably up until 2000 working in that space and doing a lot of different sort of avant-garde type theater. So, yeah, I say, so I really spent a lot of time uh, really in Chicago doing that. Now, while you were in Chicago, did you visit some of the bigger named places like the city and IO and some of those joints? Not so much. Like again, improv really wasn't my jam at the time. Um, we were lucky, however, in 2000, um, we would, I, well, I'll, I'll take that back. You know, it was, it wasn't even, I was really, we were really into the underground scene. So it wasn't IO that I was attracted to. It wasn't Second City. It was the Annoyance Theater. 
Okay. All right. And, you know, and what they were doing that, those were the shows that I went to go see. Um, but we were lucky enough when, when Mark Epstein sold Cafe Voltaire, um, that was the end of our underground home. And so myself and Lisa Dowda, uh, Lisa really campaigned for this and championed this, but she was trying to save the theater and kind of move it to another space. And um, so we did uh, quite a few um, money raising, fundraising events and shows. And one of the shows that we did was hosted um, by Second City. Um, Kelly Leonard was, a, was an angel to us at the time and let us put together this big show and helped us get people from Annoyance and Second City and a lot of people to come and do this show. So I was actually able to perform on that stage and uh, um, perform with, with some people um, sort of indirectly. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was the, the 90s in Chicago was a great, great time for kind of that underground and fringe theater. And it was really supported by, by places like Second City. You know, you mentioned the annoyance just recently at the um, Emmy Awards, uh, McNapier name was mentioned. I don't know if you were yes. aware of that or not, but that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, um, yeah, it, it makes a great director, a great improviser, just a great person. And, uh, you know, I follow him. Uh, I've never met him personally. Um, but one of the one of the things the one thing I remember, though, one of the I cherish this. So the uh, the the fundraising show that we did at Second City, I used to I did this act where um, I started working with a guy named Brooks Palmer, and he he did this show called Better Late Than Dead. Uh huh. <laughs> and it was we would try out ten minute plays, and he was a comedian, a stand up, and he would do a lot of different things. And uh, it, we worked for about nine months, and then we, he just felt it was getting stale, and we were running out of material. Well, at that point, I told him, I said, "You know what? I've got a drawer full of material." And that drawer full of material were letters from my mother that I had become estranged from. So uh, I, I became estranged from my, my, my mother and my entire family uh, when I moved to Chicago. And my mom would continue to send me letters. And I opened one letter one day. And really, it was just there was there was a lot of it, it was one of those letters. It was written in red ink. And uh, it really just said some horrible things that, you know, I don't, I can't imagine one person saying to another. And, uh, but this was my mother saying them to me. Oh my God. Well, yeah, and it upset me for like two weeks. So I decided, okay, I'm cutting off all communication, but I kept getting letters. So instead of opening them, I would just throw them in a drawer just in case, like I didn't know what was going on. It was just, just in case I needed proof of something at some point. So anyway, I kept these letters in a drawer and uh, I said, I've got a drawer full of material. And what I would, my act was bringing a letter to the theater and my spot on the show was to open the letter and read it out loud for the first time in front of an audience. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So talk about improvisation, right? Um, but yeah, so, so that was my gig. And then I kind of worked that thing into a couple of one man shows. And then finally, I got reviews to those shows. 
And then what I would do later at this, um, at the fundraiser is I would take out the reviews of the shows I did and read the reviews, which again was this kind of interesting sort of putting the critic on stage, you know, rather than the other way around. And it was very interesting. So that's what I did on this fundraising show. But Mick, what he did was fabulous. He did a tap dance routine to the song Convoy. And I just, I just delight in that. Sometimes I just, yeah, sometimes that just crossed my mind and it brings a smile to my face. But that's, that's, my, that's my personal memory of me. Wow. Now, we, I need to go forward into the past because you made a comment and you said that improv at the time wasn't particularly your jam. So what right. was your jam then, Bill? Um, like I said, I was, I was dissatisfied it was hard to get, I didn't want to go out and do the auditions, you know, and just follow that path of sort of every other actor. So I found, you know, this underground theater where you could write your own stuff, perform your own stuff. You could do plays that you would never be cast in or aren't being produced. And so it was really kind of a do it yourself kind of thing. So that's what we did. We did a lot of that. Um, Bailiwick was another theater at the time on Belmont, and um, they did a, a director's festival. And so again, if you wanted to direct something, you would submit, you would produce it yourself and do. So it was all the very do-it-yourself stuff that, we, that I was really into. And I never really had like a plan. There wasn't any major vision. It was all experiential. I just wanted the experience of this and the experience of that. So we were just doing, yeah, underground theater. That's what I called it. The, I was into underground theater. Um, things that were kind of hidden away and we were just doing our own thing for our own people. That's totally cool. I just love that so much. So when did you get into clowning? And let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the clowning came about four years ago, four years ago. Yeah, four years ago, four years ago. <laughs> I don't know. Four years ago. Yes, it was four years ago, because when I was eight years old, I remember wanting to be a clown. And I had planned to, you know, go to clown college, and I had researched that wanted to do that and so forth. Um, that just never transpired, you know, as you get older and you 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 have to like your your parents are pressuring you to kind of go into college or join the Navy. Um, and my other option was, you know, getting in a car and traveling Route 66 to California. <laughs> See what happens. I ended up with college because Ball State had uh, had hosted the Thespian Festival when I was in high school. So I had gone there and I knew the campus and I had a great time yeah. to the Thespian Festival. So, and they were, they were a smaller college and I knew I could get accepted with my grades. So I went to Ball State and, uh, um, but, uh, so I never went to clown college. So it, it was always this dream of mine to do and then clown college closed. And so, you know, I just kind of had not thought about that for years and years and years. And then I can't remember what it was, but I do remember, yeah, I was just sitting in my living room one day and I was like, I want to, I want, I want to 
I want to accomplish this dream. So now it's 40 years later after I had, all, had said that I wanted to be a clown. And so I did some research online and I found um, the Mooseburger Arts Camp was the first place that I went. And it was a week long intensive, basically 7 a.m. to 10 at night. You're just clowning and doing all manner of things. And it's really kind of an outside in sort of clown. I mean, they they're, they they really, yeah, they, you, you, you have to know how to put on makeup, you know how, how to costume. And, and then, you know, there were skills as well. And so that's what I did. I, I said, this is what I want to do. I talked to my wife. She said that was a great idea. Um, we were we were pregnant with our second child at the time. So <laughs> I went like, let's see, April, four months after my second child was born, I was gone for a week, which I felt terrible about. But it was yeah, it was really supportive because um, she's been very supportive and she she's a, a theater teacher as well. Uh huh. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I did. So it was kind of late in life. And then I've just continued that over the last four years. I've worked with uh, Mike Funt of Four Clowns in Los Angeles, actually, when he came to Chicago and hosted a weekend of clowning at uh, Annoyance Theater. Um, so yeah, it's just been something. And it, it just made more sense to me because I went from this act, acting, like this traditional acting mindset to this underground there's something else out there and i have to dig it up and find out what what it is i'm feeling to clowning which gave me a language for what i felt i had been doing this whole time beautiful which then actually was a natural progression then back to like improv or to improv i kind of like you said i stepped forward to step back um but yeah, and that that's what led to improvisation because a lot of clowning is improvisation and, and a lot of self work. One of the things that Mike Funt told me that I take with me is um, just remember, you're more interesting than your best idea. <laughs> and I absolutely love that because it is it's about being present with yourself and trusting yourself and, you know, giving of yourself. And uh, that's that's kind of what I, I, I learned from the clowning experience. And have you been doing a lot of online workshops since the pandemic or what's that been like for you? No, I, you know, I grew up, we were the last person on the, we were the last family on the block to get a microwave. We were the last family on the block to get a dishwasher. We were the last family on the block to get a VCR. So I feel like I was the last person to sort of figure out Zoom and do anything about it. So it was, it was like a year. Yeah, almost, yeah, a year of the pandemic before I got comfortable enough to say, hey, I need this now. And it, it just so happened that I had just moved to the education department at Connor Prairie um, from the interpretation department. And so it was, I saw the, um, I was able to get an education scholarship to do my first class with Aretha. And so it was very, it just all aligned. And uh, that's how I jumped into it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously now a, a convert in that regard. That's terrific. Now you mentioned Connor Prairie. Can you tell me a little bit about what Connor Prairie is and your journey with them? 
and we'll we'll have a link to them as well because your blog about play was fantastic so tell us a little bit more about connor prairie what it is and what's your work there yeah connor prairie um uh is an interactive history museum it is known for um, the history of Indiana, particularly um, in the 1830s. Um, and we have an area called Prairie Town. So it's a, it's a, it's a village and it is populated with um, interpreters um, who, you know, dress up in the oldie timey clothes, no um, biographical facts about characters that would have lived at that time. Um, and uh, that's how we teach through that type of play, um, the history of Indiana. And so it was one of those things where Indianapolis is a great place for people wanting to act and perform and do those types of things. Um, they have a lot of museums here. So they have the Children's Museum, Connor Prairie, the Idle George. There's a lot of museums here and they all in some one capacity or another use interpretation. So historical uh, interpretation to tell the story of, of, of their, you know, whatever they're you know, focused on. And uh, so it was interesting because again, I found myself just like I found myself in Chicago. I was here in Indianapolis and I, I didn't want to work at the few, like the, the, the IRT and the Phoenix Theater. These are all great places to work, but I, it was just that traditional form of acting where you get a role, you learn the lines and you perform the play. And I was interested in something a little different than that. And so, you know, there's a few smaller um, theaters, no exit performance was one that I was um, a part of and a member of for quite a while. And yeah, very much more experimental and something that I was much more used to. Um, and then, but again, I just kept hitting this, I wasn't satisfied in, in what I was able to do within that structure. So then uh, there was a friend and everybody knows everybody just in Indiana, my joke is, is that Indiana is just one big small town. Um, and so there was somebody who knew somebody who knew me and they were looking to add to their interpretive staff at Connor Prairie. And so the idea at the time was they needed, they thought maybe if we get some more actors in, there would be a different, they, that would bring a different energy. And so I was one of the actors brought in and basically learned interpretation and uh, historical interpretation. And it was fascinating because it gave me just a different lens to do what I do. And what what exactly is historical interpretation? What does that mean? Yeah, it's um, uh, so, for example, if somebody uh, goes out, if somebody dresses up as Betsy Ross and goes out and meets with a crowd in talks as Betsy Ross in first person, that's historical interpretation. So what we, I see you played a woman named Dr. Campbell, right? Yeah, it wasn't a woman. Oh, sorry. Who's <laughs> man? Anyway, I, the story in the blog is uh, Dr. Campbell was talking to uh, a female guest. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we've never gone that far. Okay. It is Indiana. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so 
Yeah, that's what it is. So Dr. Campbell, for example, is a composite character of a doctor that may have lived in Indiana in the 1830s. Um, and that's what we focus on. We've done composite, composite characters um, uh, just to kind of tell the story of Indiana. So it's like coming into, you're kind of stepping into the story, stepping into the past um, so that you can talk to somebody who lived in 1830s. So as an actor, um, you know, I was used to researching and, you know, developing character and so forth. Um, and as an interpreter, um, I learned how to, you know, keep all of those uh, facts and nuances of that time in check because there, there's vernacular that you wouldn't hear. Right, right, right. You know, like I wouldn't say, okay, you know, and things like that. So you have to be, you really have to be, it's like improvising in a different time period. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think about what Hal Holbrook did with Mark Twain. Yes. And um, actually we have um, a former cult here called Karshan in, in uh, Sterile, Florida, where a, a man from Chicago, he was very charismatic. He brought all these women down to this little swamp town in Florida over a hundred years ago. Uh, in the 1800s, they, the women came without their husbands, and they formed this community of arts and culture and theater. And this man, uh, Korshan, believed that the earth, we were all actually living in the middle of the earth, kind of Tolkien. Um, but anyway, um, and so they do historical enactments there of the period and how they spoke and how they dressed and the different things they did. It was really it was very interesting work. And since I took the stage for a second, I'm really interested in what you're doing, not just artistically, but my family was settling in Indiana around the 1830s on my father's side. And so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of Escots over at Crown Cemetery. Oh, nice. I will, I will check that out. I love Crown Cemetery. That's uh, my, my family and I, we love to take walks through cemeteries. Nothing like it. So tell me, uh, uh, when you started working for Corner Prairie in the beginning, interpretive history, and where have you, what have you done with them since then? Uh, well, I, uh, I was an interpreter for many years, and then I became one of the managers of interpretation. And then that then led to uh, me moving to education uh, program development. So I now work in the education side of things. Um, working with our preschool and so forth. And so it was that, it was kind of that overlap in between interpretation and what I was doing from a management standpoint and interpretation to what education had started to become um, by starting a preschool and doing, doing some things kind of in a, yeah, we were, we were crossing over. And the thing that really was the, the thing that brought those two departments together was this idea and theory of play and how important it is not only to early childhood development, but also um, I believe, you know, to humans <laughs> in general, it doesn't matter how old you are, um, that play is very important. So, and that's essentially what I felt that I was doing. I mean, when, when you put on, you know, 
when you play when you play dress up and pretend to be another person you're you're playing and that's what you do as an as a historical interpreter there is much more that you do it is it is really a skilled and nuanced uh, uh profession but you know at its at its core it is play Sorry, we share such a common interest in play. And in 1984, I went to a conference called The Healing Power of Humor in Play. And that's when I got turned on to the power of play and how important play is. And um, there's been some fabulous works written about play. Your blog is terrific. I'll put a link to the blog um, on that. And do you, and you know, play is so essential. And you, you mentioned something in your blog about what the Chinese uh, education division decided several decades ago, I guess. Yeah, in, uh, in Anji County, um, uh, they're, they, they're, they started a whole movement of uh, basically what's called Anji play. And it is really a very um, specific, and uh, researched and experienced way of allowing um, early childhood um, uh, to play. But not only, it's not only focused on the children, it's also focused on the educator. Um, and it's about stepping back, mouth shut, hands down, and really allowing the children, giving them permission to, to discover through play and they added another element of, of reflection. And so in many Anji schools, you will see the teachers uh, recording the child's play. And what that allows the teacher to do is not only review it afterward to see and review it multiple times through multiple filters to really see and try to, try to, understand what is happening in a child's play so that you can adjust the environment to support it. But it's also something where they, they show the play back to the child so that the child can express what, what it was that they were doing. So, so the child then has an opportunity to draw or express or write their play story. And it just really helps it be I feel, um, you know, sort of inbred in you as far as, you know, the reflection, you know, it's not just this passing thing uh, that, that I experienced, but it, it, you take some reflection with it so you can really understand what it is you're seeing and what it is you're doing. Uh, you probably know that Neva Boyd, who was uh, Viola's teacher, brought play into the American system, recreational play, because before then children would be seen and not heard, and how significant that was, the work they did. I, uh, I don't know if you know who Ashley Montague is. Um, you've heard of him, he's a, a great anthropologist, uh, passed away now, but Ashley Montague, um, very well known, you have to look him up, and he did a lot of work around play, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and another name I'm going to drop is Dr. Stuart Brown. And I don't know if you know him or not, but um, I love his TED Talks. And I love when he shows a polar bear playing with a wolf, I think it is. Yeah. And how interspecies play. I mean, it just makes you smile so much. And 
play is so vital to the human being and so many adults forget about play and so uh you're working with adults to helping them play again as well yeah the um dr brown the dr brown's book was the one that i really focused on and used i actually mike font was the person who introduced me to it and uh, he did some work with um, Dr. Brown. And so it was that book that I started to develop some uh, training techniques for interpreters, um, particularly how to identify uh, play personalities within our guests. Because that really, if you understand that, if you understand the audience, as, as Viola you know, stated in her book, you know how important that is, um, uh, that, that it's the the audience is very important so understanding the audience and who you're performing for and looking at their play personalities that's what i got from stuart brown and uh yeah and and then that led me all the way back to like neva boyd and i'm still researching and learning more and more people like play has been around forever but it's still so hard to have people understand and accept that play is a valid form of learning absolutely yeah and um you know i'm lucky that you know connor prairie really supports the the philosophy and theory um along with the, all the other demands um on them as an institution so i'm really lucky to be able to be in this place to to, to sort of continue to discover that and continue my education through through doing that is so wonderful i just love the work that you're doing and I love the research that you've done. I said, I used the word erudite a little earlier today. And, and it's funny because you were born in 69. That was the summer of love and all yeah. of that. And you kind of remind me of my friends back then. People yeah. can't actually see you, but they'll see your picture. Right. And, um, you, I, you know, hippies become a bad word, I guess. But I, I feel you have that beautiful hippie spirit of adventure and discovery. And that's what makes this so wonderful. I, I, I just admire you so much, Bill. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And it, 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 it's taken me a long time. You know, it's taken me 52 years to figure out what it is I have to offer um, just in general, or at least accept it. But um, yeah, it's funny to me, like in education, I asked Aretha about this, you know, in education, why isn't Neva Boyd and, and uh, Viola more, more, more known just in education and it, and it is because you know i mean the, the the focus on theater that viola had the so the social work that neva did they kind of live in those categories and they and and education uh, you don't see them a lot in education public publications so it's interesting to be around the table here at work with a lot of educators and put introducing them to those people and they're just they're just struck by the words um, of these brilliant women and that have, that have been doing this for so I know. long. I know. So I know. You know, I, I speak a lot with other therapists, social workers like myself and other therapists. And of course, I tell them they really need to read all of Viola Spolin's book, but especially stuff on coaching and her stuff about acceptance, because it's vital to the kind of work we do as therapists and many careers, you know, many professions is so applicable to 
And I think by being little Johnny Appleseeds and spreading the word of Viola, hopefully she will become a textbook at some point because yeah. I think it's so necessary. Well, what's in the future for you now, Bill? Oh, uh, who knows? All I, right, good. A day I've time. never known. I've never known. Um, you know, I mean, we we're you know we're in a we're in an interesting time, and uh, but uh, you know, I I still do I I still get called on to do clowning, and even if it's not clowning, like um, a, a few months ago, I was asked to come in to be a troll on um on kind of a, a it was it was an event about fairies and sprites and things like that and i was hired to be a troll and i was uh to ride on a caboose of a train and just sort of entertain the guests on the on the caboose and so a lot of clowning came out in that of course i didn't have my red nose or anything like that you know a lot of those techniques um uh, uh came about. And because of that, then the people at um, uh, the Nickel Plate Express um, reached out to me to do another event coming up called the Wizard Express in October um, and to to do a similar sort of thing. So I was able to hire a few more um, uh, friends and performers to come out and do similar type of work on there. So that's coming up in October and we're working on that and excited to uh, to share that with folks here. Um, we have a big season at Connor Prairie uh, coming up with our Headless Horseman Festival that goes ah. uh, goes goes all of October. Um, so that'll be exciting, and then Mary Prairie Holiday after that. And I'm now um, I do a series here called Explore the Arts, um, where I uh, contract and and find interesting and unique acts to fill a schedule of an entire year. Um, of performances so you know it's uh that those types of things will keep me busy and very satisfied like i found a love for if i'm not on stage anymore if i can get other acts in front of people i really like just watching a performance and i would like watching an audience watching a performance and just being able to you know just set the set the environment and set the mood for everybody to have a a great uh, experience in the gathering, you know. So so that's that's what I'm up to. Oh, that is fantastic, and I can't wait to talk to you again, maybe uh, several months or a year from now, and revisit what you're doing because I really believe in what you're doing, and I'm so grateful you were able to find time to be my guest today, Bill. Oh, absolutely, Margo. It, it was, I was thrilled. Uh, I was thrilled that you asked. Oh, well, thank you so much. And keep carrying on. All right. All right. Just we're, uh, we were just going to keep, I'm just going to keep playing. That's a great way to end it. Keep playing. Thank you, Bill. And bye-bye. Thank you, Margo. Bye-bye.